Thank you, Barry. Good morning. Well, let me say for the last time, turning your Bibles to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 24 reminds me of a well-known anecdote when Michelangelo was painting the Sistine Chapel and he was taking his merry time. And the Pope came to Michelangelo and said, when will you make an end? In a very frustrated tone, and Michelangelo said, when I'm finished. <laughs> Maybe you've been asking, when will he make an end? Well, I'm no Michelangelo, but today we will finish our two-year journey in the book of 2 Samuel. I'm convinced that it's hard to make sense of the New Testament without making sense of this glorious document known as First and Second Samuel. Well, let's ask the Lord to bless our time as we gather today for the preaching of the word. Lord, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for your providence in allowing us to gather and worship over the last two years over the preaching of the, the book of Samuel. Preacher only gets to say 66 times in his ministry that he has completed a book. And Lord, I'm grateful for that. I pray that we could finish strong. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say by your spirit through this word today. I pray the preacher would not get in the way of that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All of us have been pleading, crying out for mercy for our city over the previous days. And the Lord has been merciful, hasn't he? Mercy is not deserved. It's never deserved. But mercy is always needed. I think one of the benefits of these past months is it reminds us that every moment of every day... We need mercy. And that's not as palatable to us in times of prosperity. And yet we have a hard time trusting God for his mercy. Consider this analogy. On August the 16th, 1996, maybe you remember this, at the Brookfield Zoo in Illinois, there was a three-year-old little boy who fell 18 feet into a pit filled with gorillas, seven gorillas. It was a horrific situation. What's going to happen? All of a sudden, this seven-year-old gorilla named Bentia, a female gorilla, picks up this three-year-old little boy and begins to cradle him and care for him. And, and she tenderly walks this little boy over to the, to the door where the doorkeepers are, are standing and she places gently this little three-year-old down at their, their feet. Very maternalistic. And the parents certainly will be forever grateful to Binti, this gorilla. But I'm sure if you were to ask them, they would not want to trust 
their children again to a gorilla. D.R. Davis argues that this is how we tend to think of the Lord's mercies. We, we tend to look upon divine mercy as an exception rather than fundamental to who God is. But as we're going to see today in this closing chapter of 2 Samuel, this was not the case with David. Even in God's severe discipline on David and on the people, he knew that he was not facing a gorilla god. We know later in Cincinnati, a gorilla didn't take care of a child. But David knew that he was not facing a gorilla god. But he worshipped one whose mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. David had mused upon Exodus 34 perhaps many times in his life when Moses said, show me your way, show me your glories. And, and the Lord responds to Moses by preaching a sermon on his name. We just sang about the name this morning. He preached a sermon about his name and he said, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and kindness. Forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You get the tension there. So here's the question. How can God be merciful in a way that does not compromise his justice? He forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sins, but he does not clear the guilty. We're going to see the answer today. David recognized that. In this passage. But the first thing we see in this passage is God's holy and righteous wrath and David's census of his people. It's interesting how this, this entire book ends. Look with me in verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. That's going back to chapter 21 where the wrath was on Israel because of Saul's failure to keep the terms of the covenant with the, the Gibeonites. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. It does not tell us why the Lord was angry with Israel. But what's important to see here is that he was angry with Israel before the events in chapter 24 unfold. Now, to make this issue even more complex, it tells us in 1 Chronicles 21, these words, Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Same account, parallel account in 1 Chronicles. So here, it's the Lord who's inciting David. And in 1 Chronicles 21, it is Satan inciting David. Now, is there a contradiction here? Absolutely not. The Scripture teaches that all Scripture is God-breathed. And as a result, ultimately, there is one divine author. The Bible does not have contradictions. And so what's going on here? Well, first of all, we have to do kind of a little systematic study here. And let me begin by offering ye these words from a very well-known text in James chapter 1. 
Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. And so we know that God does not tempt anyone to do evil. And yet here it says he is inciting David to do this census, which clearly was not his revealed will for David. Now, in in permitting Satan to incite him, I believe the writer is saying that ultimately God is sovereign even over evil. We know that, don't we? We know that because of the cross. God had a sovereign purpose even in Satan's act of inciting David. We We see that in Job. It is the devil who devastates Job and his family. And what is Job's confession in Job chapter 1 after he is devastated? The Lord gives. The Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says, and with these words, Job did not sin with his tongue. Now this is obviously mind stretching. I mean, this will stretch and expand your mind. God takes our free decisions... Even the most wicked of decisions, all right? And he uses them for a perfect plan. Now, that in no way exonerates us. But Psalm 145, verse 17, I think is key here as well. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, kind in all his works. So everything the Lord does is motivated by righteousness and kindness. And so the Lord is able to use both good and evil, without in any way demeaning or or undermining human responsibility, lessening human responsibility, and without impugning his righteousness. Think about Genesis 50. Uh, Joseph had been sold as a slave by his brothers and ended up in Egypt. And when... His brothers were introduced to him after this long uh, alienation from them. And he is reunited with them. What does he say in Genesis 50? What God, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Or how about Acts 2.23? I think this is one of the supreme texts for this. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So the cross was foreordained by God himself. It was not an unfortunate accident in history. And yet, what does Peter say? You crucified and killed him. So God's sovereignty in no way undermines human responsibility. There's a great tension there. and, and, And we don't understand how that mystery works. But remember, if we could understand all of God's ways... That would mean that his wisdom is just a heightened version of ours. That's all it is. If the Lord does not confound us sometimes, maybe every day, if the Lord does not confound us sometimes, then we're not dealing with a God who's worthy of worship. His ways and his thoughts are not our ways and our thoughts. And so... 
even though God is sovereign, David here sins. And it appears that he was concerned in this census with either counting how many men he had already in his army or he was concerned about how many were old enough to be drafted. Some scholars believe that he was, he was becoming very aggressive and, and was, was on the war path. But why was it wrong? Why was the census wrong? After all, Exodus chapter 30 actually gives us the proper procedure for taking a census in Israel. So that raises the question again, why is taking a census wrong in particular cases? Why is it dangerous? Well, numbering things, and we learned this in our study of Exodus, Exodus 30, numbering things in the ancient Near East was an act of authority. Who has the right to number things? Only the owner of the thing that is numbered. So who had a right to number the the Israelites? Only God had a right to number the Israelites. And he would certainly call Israel to do this, but it still was him who was demonstrating ownership. Clearly, he was not, David was not commanded to do this census at this point. So whenever Israel took a census, it was a dangerous thing. They were in danger of forgetting who owned them. They were in danger of taking credit for their mass numbers, taking pride in it, if you will. And so to ensure that Israel remembered who actually was in authority, Exodus 30 tells us that every person numbered had to pay the ransom of a half shekel. There's no evidence here that that was carried out, the half shekel. And the fact that Exodus 30 tells us that God would bring a plague on the people if they did not pay that half shekel kind of indicates that's what's behind David's sin here. Whatever it is, most fundamentally, David, in his own words, was guilty, as we'll see this in verse 10, of sin against God and committing iniquity against God. And that's all we need to know. That really is. Text doesn't just explicitly lay it out. All we need to know is that David sinned and there's consequences to sin. Now, we may not like that, but doesn't God know better than us? He knows better than us. And we certainly think that about ourselves when we are parenting our children. And so when you perhaps had a toddler who wanted to stick everything, okay, into the, the light socket, the electric socket, uh, what would you say to your kid? Would you, would you explain all the implications of what you were doing? Would you go into the discussion of electrons and currents and the fact that if you stick this, uh, anything inside that socket, uh, it, it just may be that the current enters your body and will disrupt your, your central nervous system and cause the burning of your epidermis and perhaps the stoppage of your heart. No, because a child could not process that. What you say is, no, don't do that. Why, Dad? Because I love you and I know better than you. And that's enough. 
And even though perhaps our children do not know as much as we, the parent, know, think about our relation to God. The gap between our knowledge and our children pales in comparison to our knowledge and the infinite mind of God. God has a reason for every law. He has a reason for every boundary. He has a reason for every restriction. We, we do not have the autonomy to change God's laws and redefine things because it fits the culture. He has a reason for everything. And just because we fail to understand those reasons doesn't mean they don't exist for a good reason. That brings us to verse 2. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, he recognized there's something off here. May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. While the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Why does he delight in this thing? And this, I think, gets at the heart of David's sin. It's found in this word. Notice, delight. That word was used earlier in chapter 22. Verse 20, where it says that God delighted in David. In Psalm 40, verse 8, this word is used. When, when David says, I delight to do your will, my God. But here, David delights in knowing how many soldiers, how big his army is. And so it appears that David's delight is the fruit of sinful pride, hubris, and self-sufficiency. It reminds me of Caesar Augustus when he took that consensus throughout the Roman world to demonstrate how great he was as a Caesar. Sinful pride. I also believe it's the sin, the fruit of unbelief. David was resting in the size of his army rather than in the Lord his God. It, it takes us all the way back to the sins that Israel had committed earlier when they wanted a king like the nations to fight their battles. They had rejected Yahweh as king. And this unbelief demonstrated by David was another expression of that. In better days, David had written in Psalm 27, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God, but not here. Reminds us even the best of God's people can develop self-sufficiency and independence. Now notice in verse 4. So Joab has asked David, why, why do you delight in this? Why are you finding your delight in the size of your army? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king 
to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aurora and from the city that is in the middle of the valley towards Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan, and from Dan they went out from Sidon and came to the fortress of Tara and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But I want you to notice at the end of nine months and 20 days, you remember back when David had sinned with Bathsheba. She had conceived a child. And so we know that it had been at least nine months since David had committed that sin. And for nine months, David was unrepentant over his sin until Nathan came to him. And so we recognize that even an, a believer can have periods of time in their lives where they have unrepentant sin in their lives. So it's been at least 10 months since David committed this sin against God. Well, that brings us to the second part of this passage, God's wrath and the king's intercession. Notice with me in verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. His heart is much more tender now. It didn't even require a prophet at this point. Once he heard the numbers... His heart struck him. David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And this word struck is a severe word. I mean, it is a, I'm not sure that the English language picks up the severity of what David was experiencing. It literally means to be attacked or assaulted. Sometimes in the Bible, and you will appreciate that, that this, these days, it's used in reference to a city that is destroyed. So we get that analogy, don't we? Especially when we turn on the news and we see certain cities burning because of the passive governments of those cities. And, and that's what's happening in David's heart. That's what sin does to a believer. His heart struck him. That is the mark of a believer. You may have a period of time where you go without repentance. All right? But trust me. The Holy Spirit knows where you are. That's why I tell college students all the time, I don't worry about you cheating in class. I, I don't worry about it. I'm not one of those paranoid professors. Because I know if you're truly born again, you're not going to get away with it, even if you get away with it in my class. The Holy Spirit is going to make you so miserable 
that you're going to come back and have to eat humble pie and look me in the eyes. All right? I've seen it throughout the years. And if you're not made miserable about it, is it worth going to hell to make better in a class because you cheated? Well, in the same way, you, no believer can get away with his or her sin. This is exactly what happens to every believer when he or she sins. Our hearts strike us. And you see what he does here. It is glorious. He does business with God. He comes to the Lord. I have sinned. Now, Lord, please take away the iniquity. Because what I've done, and this is what sin is, it is foolish to commit high-handed sin. Notice in verse 11. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, that's his prophet, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Now remember, this account began with the Lord's anger on the people of God. We don't know what sin they've committed. It doesn't matter. It would tell us. So it's not just God's anger over David. It's God's anger with the people of God at large. And so his census was just an outworking of God's wrath on the people. What, what God does oftentimes, and you can see this in Psalm 78, for instance, but you certainly see it in the wilderness wandering years. You see it in Romans 1, that one of the ways he, he chastises us and disciplines us is he gives us over. He gives us over for a time to our sin. Okay, you want to take ownership of your life? I'll let you see what happens when you take on ownership of your life. Well, notice in verse 14. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Now that word distress, it means to be tied up, restricted, cramped. There is inner turmoil in his soul. There is no sin you can commit that makes this worth it. And this is where a believer is when he or she is committed high-handed sin. And he knew that sinful's, sinful mercies or sinful man's mercy is not great. He knew that man at best is very, very inconsistent in showing mercy. But he does know the Lord's mercy is great. So notice in verse 15. So the Lord... Because David has said, let me not fall into the hand of man. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord. His mercy is great. The Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. What God does is not arbitrary. He has an appointed time. 
when we sin, we reap what we sow, and there is an appointed time of reaping. I say that not to make you paranoid. I say that so that we would fear God more. He has an appointed time with everything he does. He's not arbitrary. He doesn't go off the cuff. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba. So Dan is the northern part of Israel and Beersheba is the very southern part. 70,000 men. Now, I can hear this response. How can God do this? It really is the prevalent question in our culture. How could God ever allow something like this to happen? But I think a better question, how can God stop where he does? Knowing what, he, what, knowing what we deserve. I think that's the better question. This judgment wasn't just on David, it was on Israel. We saw it at the very beginning. Throughout the Old Testament. And this is important for us. When God brings judgment on a society, he does so because the society has become violent and depraved. You remember the flood. Well, listen back to Genesis 6, verse 5, what it says. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Or how about when Jonah went to the Ninevites and called them to repentance, lest God's wrath and judgment fall on them. God's judgment falls on a society when it reaches a certain level of depravity. And when we can just we can just say, and I've heard this from professing Christians. I've heard this from pastors who I respect. Abortion is just one issue. What? Murder is just one issue. That's what they're saying. There's a real problem with that. Praise God for the Supreme Court justice that was appointed yesterday, not to get to political, but pray for her. Praise God for her. When a nation reaches a certain level of depravity, God says what my geometry teacher used to say in 10th grade, oftentimes because of me. Enough is enough. And he works like that at the individual level too, doesn't he? He works like that at the national level. But when he sees us on a trajectory of destruction, he often sends pain, all right, to protect us from even worse judgment to come. And so we often think that a person who is caught committing some high-handed or vile act is experiencing God's wrath. It may be that that person got caught because God wants to protect him from his wrath. It may just be a severe mercy. Wrath would allow that person to continue on in his or her sin until judgment. Well, notice the 
In verse 16, we see God's wrath, but we see God's mercy. The very thing David appeals to. Verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aaroni the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And he said, Behold, I have sinned and have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And so what David does here is he he pleads that the Lord would direct his judgment at him, not at the people of God. Claiming their innocence. Well, as noble as his desire was, we know he was wrong in his assessment of their innocence. We know that. But more importantly, what we see here with David as the mediator for the people, interceding, pleading for God's mercy, it's through the intercession of this Messiah. And that's who he is. He's the anointed one. That means Messiah in Hebrew. It is through the intercession of this Messiah that stays God's hand. That's the verb. Stays God's hand. Beautiful mercy. God's mercy in response to the intercession of the Messiah. But David would have to make, as we're going to see, an altar. To provide sin offerings in order to end the plague completely. Notice in verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar. You know what the word altar means in Hebrew? Literally, the place of slaughter. The place of slaughter. Go up, rise, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aaroni the Jebusite. And so David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. So this means the situation was not resolved, all right, in verse 16. And so God's wrath was stayed for a moment because of his intercession And his plead for mercy. David's that is. But his wrath was not satisfied. His wrath has to be, to use a fancy term, but it's in our English Bibles, ESV, New American Standard. His wrath had to be propitiated. Propitiated means to satisfy God's wrath. It's a biblical term. God's wrath. And this is how the text, this is how Samuel is ending. This is not a coincidence. An emphasis on atonement. Isn't that beautiful? That brings us to the final part of this passage, the final part of this book. God's wrath and atonement. Notice me in verse 20. And when Aaron 
looked down. Now, who's Aaronite? The Jebusite. You remember the Jebusites were the ones that David defeated when he inhabited Jerusalem. Aaronite means Lord. So it's likely he is the king of the Jebusites. All right? And when Aaronite looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aaronite went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. The last time we heard about the Jebusites, they are fighting David. And now the king of the Jebusites is bowing down, paying homage to God's king. A Gentile, no less. What does that remind you of? The promises made to Abraham through the seed of Abraham. The nations will be blessed. Who is the seed of Abraham at this moment? It's the king, David. So this Jebusite king is paying homage. And Aaron I said, verse 21, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aaron I said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aaronah gives to the king. And Aaronah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. The king said to Aaronah, And this is such an important verse. I pray that God the Spirit would burn this desire in every single Christian here. Imagine the impact a church could have on the community and the world if every true Christian born of God, heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood, had this as the sentiment of his or her life. I will not Burn, offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. That is glorious. I'm not going to do anything on behalf of the Lord that doesn't cost me something. He's overcome with mercy. So this king appears to be the king of the Jebusites, wants to just give everything to David. And David demands on paying the full price. But make no mistake, he's not trying to purchase favor or acceptance from God. He clearly knows that favor comes at the cost of a substitute. This is gratitude to God. This is gratitude for His mercy. We've all been there. Thursday, I ran into to two Louisville policemen. I was at lunch. I was in a hurry. And I didn't really have time to go talk to anybody. But I made a beeline for them. And all I could say was thank you. 
Thank you. What you do is noble and important. And tears were dropping, dripping. And one of the two, I don't know about the other because I was looking at one particular in his eyes. His eyes filled with tears. And he said, thank you. I said, when I saw those men and women on the front lines last night, shoulder to shoulder, standing there protecting our city, you guys are heroes. Thank you. At that moment, I would have run through a wall for both of them. That's gratitude for, for someone's mercy and, and grace and their service to us. That's where David is right here. He is stirred. He is overcome. I'm not going to do anything that won't cost me. Oh, God, raise up an army of Christians in the United States at Fisherville who has that same sentiment. I'm willing to be inconvenienced. I'm willing to have it cost me my time and my talents and treasures. I'm willing to do it. It may even be dangerous. I'm going to do it anyway. That's where David is. And notice how this text ends. So David bought the threshing floor, the oxen. I love this imagery. The king is purchasing at his own cost what would bring atonement for the people. The oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord. And offered burnt offerings. That's for atonement and peace offerings. For restoration of fellowship with God. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land. And notice how 2 Samuel ends. The plague was averted from Israel. How did Samuel begin? September the 9th, 2018. We saw that sacrifices to God were being offered by corrupt priests. Eli's sons, corrupt priests. And it ends with sacrifices being offered, assumedly, by the king through the righteous priest. Now, it's interesting. Second Chronicles 3, now this is important, gives us more information as to where this altar was. Second Chronicles 3, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Ornan is his name. Aaronai is his vocation, his position. You get that? Where this altar was purchased, is the future place of the temple. It was critical. But don't forget, we've read about Mount Moriah before. 
In Genesis 22, verse 3, the Lord instructed Abraham to go to Mount Moriah, this very place, and to offer his son as a sacrifice. Was not God's intention for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? In fact, one of the things that God was teaching Israel through that is that as you go into the land of Canaan, you're going to see Canaanites who offer their sons to satisfy the gods. And I can never be satisfied like that. He was teaching them that through this event. Because Isaac gets on that altar knowing that he is the seed of promise. And that a dead seed does no one any good. He says, Father, where's the lamb? And Abraham answers Isaac. And it becomes the driving question of the Old Testament. God himself. God will provide himself the lamb. And he provided a ram in the thicket. As a substitute that Isaac might be saved. And then flash forward to the building of the temple on this very place. And in that temple, sacrifices would be offered every day, every week, and every year. And when David pled in verse 17 that he would die in the place of the people, he was offering himself as a sacrifice, but he could never do that. That's the whole point of Samuel. He, he needed someone other than himself. See, all three of these scenes, the, the account in Genesis 22, this particular account in 2 Samuel 24 and the, the future building of the temple at this very place points to the reality that Israel and the nations need to reverse the sin cycle. And they would need someone better than David to do that. David is the best king Israel would ever have. And all he did was exasperate the problem. They would need a king, yes, like David, to subdue them to himself, to, to God, and to defeat their enemies. But they would need a priest as well who would take away their guilt once for all. And in the one that David points... The Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, we have both. God's perfect king, God's perfect priest. Hebrews 10, listen to these words as we close out. Every priest stands daily at his service. Where? He stands at that temple, at the place of the altar where David had purchased it from Aaron I the Jebusite. That's where they stood. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Israel's history reveals that, doesn't it? But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, do you see the point there? 
He's the offerer. He's the priest. He's the offering. He's the lamb. Father, where's the lamb? God will provide himself the lamb. He sat down at the right hand of God. Who sits down at the right hand of God? A king. Waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you see why he needed to be a priest even before he could do his work as a king? Without a priest, when the king subdues us, we're subdued in judgment. But as our priest, he makes us fit. He takes away our sins. He forgives us so that when we are subdued to him, something David could not do, we come in worship. We come in repentance and faith. What is the book of Samuel about? It's about Redeemer sending. It's about the one who will come who is greater than David, and we have him. And guess what? He has made that sacrifice once for all. And here's the deal. No matter what we see, and I've been talking about this a lot, but this has been providential for us. No matter what we see or hear in the news, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's where he rules and he reigns. And no one can thwart that reign. And that is every believer's hope in this room. And it can be your hope if you've never trusted him. And that's the glory of atonement. When Christ died for sins, he died for every sin that a human being could ever commit. He took the wrath for those who would trust in him. The Bible says if you'll trust in him, your sins will be taken away. That's something David could never do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for this time in Samuel. Thank you that we don't have to go to an altar anymore to have our sins forgiven. In Christ, Hebrews 10 verse 13 says, we have an altar. What a glorious line, Lord. We have an altar. Once for all, in Christ who takes away our sins. And I pray that mercy that we know supremely in your Son would so work in us that we could say with David, how could we offer anything to you that does not cost us? Lord, may that be the testimony of Fisherville. May that be the testimony of every person in this room today. We ask these things in the name, matchless name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.